This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. This week, you lucky listeners get two episodes for the price of one. Unusually for the podcast, we recorded two episodes back-to-back in just two days. For this reason, they are kin, intimately connected, and shall go forth into the world as such. Each shares the same intro, so whichever one you're listening to first, don't worry, I'm going to keep this one short. Both conversations were less structured than usual. I did have questions, but allowed both conversations more space to evolve and flow, and there may even be a little bit of rambling on both sides from time to time, but we hope never enough to bore. We are exploring new creative spaces after all. Our two guests are at opposite ends of the career spectrum. Zach Walsh is finishing up a PhD program, while Robert Foreman is a retired professor of religious studies. Foreman is an atypical guest for the podcast. Much of our work has been critical of Western spirituality, explorative of more philosophically leaning themes, and aimed towards constructing divergent ways of imagining Buddhism, spirituality, contemplation, and notions of path, tradition, and outcomes. Robert spent much of his career exploring themes that have come up in our podcast episodes, uniting his spiritual bent with academic writing on topics, including mysticism, non-duality, pure consciousness, and even ending up in a debate with Stephen T. Katz on whether mystical experience is socially constructed or an innate universal capacity. Robert is a long-term practitioner of TM, that's Transcendental Meditation, and we start off our discussion by talking about this controversial practice. We get into a range of topics covering his interests and non-academic writings, including his recent Enlightenment Ain't What Is Cracked Up To Be. I do my best to lead the conversation towards the more academic topics, but I am only partially successful. I hope that the attempts to do so make for an interesting conversation all the same, and it must be said that Robert is game throughout our chat. My conversation with Zach was quite different, but not necessarily devoid of the personal or traces of mystical inquiry, although perhaps he or I would use a slightly different language to refer to such. Zach is currently working in the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, in Germany, exploring the relationship between contemplative practices and ecology. He has written some great work that resonates with many of my own concerns, insightful critiques of mindfulness and meditation culture, using a variety of lenses that deserve wider attention, 
and has more recently developed what he calls the contemplative commons, which becomes a central topic of our discussion. We also look at the interplay of activism and contemplative practices, future directions for the development of spirituality firmly grounded in our imminent world, metamodernism, transcendence, and we even get into discussing China, and there's a film reference to boot. Enjoy this tandem cycle through different lives and minds, as the Imperfect Buddha podcast continues its journey onwards through destinations unknown. Music for these episodes is provided by the Bristol-based artist 100 Strong, this time in a collaboration with Callie Phoenix, who's a great singer from Scotland. Check out their work at the usual locations including her most recent album, Voices. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. This time round, we've got Zach Walsh with us, and it's great to have you on, Zach. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Great. So you've been doing some very interesting work, but quite a few of our listeners may not have heard of you. So I think we should start with a little bit of background information. Tell us what you're currently doing, where you're currently located, and what your study and practice interests are. Sure. So I moved um, to Berlin, Germany uh, this summer, and I've been working uh, in Berlin for a couple of years on a project called the A Mindset for the Anthropocene at a think tank um, in Potsdam, which is just next to Berlin. And the think tank is called the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. And the project I work on is really trying to integrate um, inner transformation with socioecological transformation or what some might call sustainability. Um, and it comes out of the prior uh, graduate work that I'd done in particularly on mindfulness and contemplative studies, trying to understand how those practices uh, weren't isolated from social or ecological contexts and could be sort of engaged um, both in a more activist but also politically oriented way. And yeah, I've been here sort of on the project for a couple of years. I'm also a PhD candidate, so I'm sort of finished with everything but the dissertation. We call it ABD in, in the States, um, so I'm still writing that. And yeah, that sort of brings you up to the sort of professional background of myself at the moment. The the Buddhist background, uh, which you asked about, is about 10 years old. Um, it begins sort of, uh, again, with sort of uh, higher education for myself, um, starting in college where I took uh, courses like many college students do for the first time in, in Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and Confucianism and exploring Eastern traditions outside the sort of Western canon that you get as high school students. After graduating, I moved to China and stayed there for about five years, Um, first for two years in uh, the mainland in Nanjing, which is uh, just uh, about an hour outside of Shanghai. And I taught English there for about a year. I studied Chinese for a semester. And uh, throughout the whole time, I uh, was visiting Buddhist temples and uh, exploring also Taoist temples and doing a bit of writing and um, practice as well. So the whole sort of intention of that period for me was just to really um, become more familiar with the practices, the traditions, the uh, cultural heritage that I was only up to that point learning through books and through my formal education in the States. And after about two years of exploring Buddhism in mainland China, um, I was somewhat disappointed just at the uh, inability to really engage on the ground in practices with um, the monastic communities. It didn't seem to me... Uh, after visiting several temples and meeting with several of the abbots and abbesses, that there were uh, a whole lot of opportunities for international 
um, students to really take the precepts and then learn from Buddhism in those spaces. So I ended up uh, spending a summer in sort of Thailand and Nepal and India, uh, where it was much more accessible for foreigners to start engaging um, the monastic community and uh, Buddhist practice. But of, of course, I was still connected very strongly in my undergraduate connection uh, education to uh, East Asia, in particular to China. So it was a process of sort of um, discernment that came after that about where made, it made sense for me to sort of study um, in the Chinese context. And I happened upon an organization called Foguang Shan, which is an engaged uh, Chinese Buddhist organization that's based now in Taiwan. It's one of five um, engaged Chinese Buddhist organizations. And I found that they had a, both a, a monastic program at a seminary in South Africa, which initially was uh, my intention to join that program. Um, but what I ended up doing instead was to join a master's program in Taiwan uh, on Buddhist studies. And then I spent three years uh, getting my master's degree and um, taking the precepts and then also engaging in a contemplative curriculum that didn't just include book study, but included retreats every semester, volunteer service, um, ceremonial practice, um, five periods of contemplation every day. Uh, the majority of the student body actually in the Buddhist college was monastic. So that was um, really an important formative period for my own Buddhist training. And then, yeah, my academic work just sort of grew out of that, trying to combine um, my understanding of the tradition and the practices with also my sort of activist and political uh, interests and in, um, sustainability and social justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So which came first then ultimately for you in terms of inspiration, drives and uh, direction? Was it more the, the activism, the concern about environmental and social issues or the contemplative Buddhist side? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's fascinating because it's just, to me at least, it's a sort of false dualism. Um, it, it doesn't make sense for me to even frame it that way <laughs> because it really, um, I, I'd always, I mean, I could say that I always uh, felt that I had somewhat of a contemplative disposition before I really even took um, contemplative practices up. But I didn't have any kind of a religious or even explicitly spiritual upbringing. My family, my uh, nuclear family wasn't particularly religious. And so I just was exploring these things on my own and as was easiest to do at that age, just looking at a lot of philosophy texts and later religious texts. Um, and then, you know, starting, I think at the earliest, maybe like 15, just practicing meditation in a, you know, in a closet by myself, not knowing really what I was doing. <laughs> um, but again, I think uh, that was not separate from my interest in, in engagement with the world um, because my, the spiritual or contemplative values that I hold today and that have developed over of course, my adult life uh, had always been intimately intertwined with this idea of, of service and helping others and taking a sober look at the world and where it is and um, not having any illusions about that. So, you know, it's it's hard for me because it's the struggle that I actually continue to um, face today, uh, as I did 10 or 15 years ago when I started this journey. Um, and so I, it's just a to me, really a challenge of integration between uh, my spiritual contemplative values and my more engaged activist or political values. Mm -hmm. Well, struggle is probably a good, good word to use. I think that's just the nature of the beast. Perhaps that will never change. Hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about some of your earlier writing that I've 
read just for a couple of background issues because I think there's a tension between this idea of spiritual practice being something that is in service to the individual and then in being service to a commitment to the wider world, so to speak. And some of the, let's say, intellectual tools, conceptual tools that you've used in some of your earlier writings are quite interesting. They're topical and they're still relevant today. So you've mm. uh, mentioned throughout some of your text that you have an affinity with critical theory and Marxism pops up there too. But there's something quite interesting and quite refreshing that I found in some of your writing, which was this curiosity about bringing creative thought to thinking about these issues. So although you hmm. do mention that, say, some of the typical activist positions, there's a certain degree of practicality that, that follows, or there's a concern with, you know, how do we practically engage with contemplative practices and activism at the same time. And you seem to be, maybe I'm wrong about this, you'll tell me, um, you seem to be attempting to navigate that fine line between not drifting too far into theory so that some mm. of the ideas you're presenting become abstractions. Mm. It seems to me that maybe that's part of the struggle too, is you're attempting to keep a firm relationship between theoretical reflection, creative thought, and practical applications on the ground to addressing some of these issues of injustice. Would that Would that be fair to say? Would that be right? I appreciate you picking up on that. Um, I certainly feel that that's always been um, present. And I'm, I appreciate again hearing uh, this sort of feedback because I, I hope it's um, apparent to, to the people who read my work. But it's, I would say, sort of a critical constructive project that I'm always engaged in. So in one aspect, it's, as you, as you mentioned, a sort of critical understanding of uh, the world, uh, how we both are shaped by and shape the world, um, and then using resources uh including but but not limited to the spiritual and contemplative resources that Buddhism and other traditions provide, and those like Marxism and those like uh, social justice sort of lenses like anti-oppression or intersectional analysis or what have you, because those, I think, actually, in my view, are complementary, um, and they need to be combined or integrated in a way to get a full assessment or understanding of, of what's going on in the world. At the same time, that that critique in, in and of itself is is not um, enough. Hopefully in all my work, it's apparent that from a sort of position of critique, I then launch into a position of constructing, um, not an alternative that is uh, separate from the critique or somehow an outside or somehow, a, you know, a safe place that is unimpacted by that which I critique, but rather is sort of uh, really working through uh, their critique in a more creative way, as you put it, um, in a way that seems to me to be more in line with my own spiritual values and uh, assessment of the world and, and the possibilities that, that the world offers. A lot of my articles you'll see, like uh, the first half will be focused on a sort of assessment or critique, and the second half will be a sort of construction or proposal uh, for, for sort of uh, how to work through the situation. And in, in various, I do that in various ways with different materials and different articles. Um, and certainly the last point I'd, I'd sort of mention is that I, I appreciate your insight Again, because, um, you know, I'm working in currently in a think tank, uh, working with policymakers and also working with grassroots activists and civil society and really trying to ground the theoretical work that I do in a practical context. And it's very important to me to not see theory and practice as separate, but as always informing each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, good. In one piece, I, I saw this almost call for a return to some form of transcendence in your text. Now, if you've listened mm -hmm. to any of our past podcasts, you might have heard mm -hmm. Glenn Wallace and I, uh, you know, debating the imminent transcendent divide is something mm -hmm. we spoke with Adrian Ivakiv as well about. And he came up with a perspective which I quite liked, but 
that said, I, I still tend to lean towards the imminent and yeah. the imminence within practices, certainly spirituality, because I think it acts as a great counterbalance to so many of the forms of delusion that define, let's say, the dysfunctional edges of contemporary Western spirituality. But he, he, he said, and I think he's probably right, that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, transcendence and imminence are, you know, they're twins in a sense. They're, they're at play and they're constant yeah. features of, of human life and human practice. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, one text you talk about transcendence and another you talk about something called non-dual imminence which I yeah. find interesting. Uh, <laughs> probably a can of worms right there. But um, what, what would be your sort of current thoughts on the transcendent hmm. imminence divide and the importance of navigating it consciously, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, this is great. Uh, I mean, your second question, just like your first, really cuts to the chase because uh, it's maybe to some seemingly a theoretical or academic sort of debate, but it, it really... Uh, cuts to the heart of all of my work and what I'm trying to explore and, and why I find, so your sort of even prior question, the, the integration of contemplative or spiritual life with uh, worldly concern and engagement uh, important because I, as you said, sort of see the transcendent and imminent as uh, non-dual or somehow uh, integrated, connected, related in a way that can't be separated. And that comes from my own background reading of, say, I, you know, 15 years of philosophy and religion and exploration thereof, uh, to a point where now I'm um, both informed by a particular tr traditions within Buddhism, but also in, in a particular uh, process thought, if you're familiar with that, coming from um, Alfred North Whitehead and, and much of the later work, uh, especially in speculative realism and sort of new materialism and a lot of the new continental philosophy that's uh, come out in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a can of worms, but it, it really calls me. And this is also a point of debate between Glenn and I, which I find fascinating because uh, Glenn and I are friends and we often at some point in the conversation, uh, address this issue <laughs> because I, I, I tend actually to um, not disagree with, with yourself or Glenn, but it's just a matter of working out what is that uh, relationship between the transcendent and imminent uh, because to me uh, the transcendent is, is a space of sort of open possibility uh, and a sort of orientation towards a future horizon uh, that's um, creating something different than what currently exists and at the same time is in relation to what exists, right? A sort of imminence. And what you tapped into there with the, the term non-dual imminence is, is that my sort of current thinking around transcendence and imminence is sometimes called by uh, Deleuze pure imminence or by Whitehead, Whiteheadian scholars, uh, transcendental empiricism. Uh, these are academic terms that um, people are throwing around to describe this relation between the two. And I see uh, certain correlates within Buddhist thinking, certain strands of Buddhist thinking, but also um, certainly within process thinking, the new philosophy I mentioned that's coming out. And just the, the sort of practical impact this, this um, metaphysic or ontology has on action in the world, that it creates a space of creativity, possibility, and beauty, and at the same time is grounded in uh, the currently existing suffering that you mentioned earlier in the podcast or struggle that we inevitably, I think, or invariably can't completely remove ourselves from. Mm -hmm. This theory and practice split is, is always present, of course. One of the problems with this sort of anti-intellectual strain in Western spirituality has been you know, to shut out the possibility of other types of thought coming in. And one of the one of the reasons for that, I think, might be is because it requires a certain amount of work, a certain amount of graft, 
Now, you mentioned this this philosophical concept, but uh, the way I tend to view these these ideas like imminent and transcendence is, is along the lines of a sort of contemplative Dharma tool, you know? Hmm. You can take something like imminence and transcendence as, as these quite straightforward ideals and see how it affects personal practice to take one as, as the goal or the object of study or exploration for a given period of time. Hmm. And one of the ideas I've been playing with is this, this notion of transcendence this would be in line with Glenn Wallace, actually, the idea of being minimally transcendent, which I think in most cases is probably quite a healthy ideal. But another one is to think mm. of transcendence as being on a on a horizontal plane rather than on a vertical axis. Because mm. I think we can't escape the fact that so much of you know Western thinking and, and the, the history mm. of Western thought is based on horizontal lines, you know, this transcendence towards perfection, God, you know, final truth and all that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas what you were describing in this idea of imagining something different, or seeing potential or possibilities of change, they can they can be present within an, an Im- imminent realm or an imminent uh, plane, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think in that way that that sort of opens up the discussion to creativity and the possibility of creative constructive thought along the lines of what you've been exploring. Because I'll just say one more thing about your writing. I found it interesting in that there seem to be, as you rightly said, you start off with an introduction in which you critique, and then you kind of change directions. And I found that in a couple of conclusions there were these thoughts that seem to be added on quite late <laughs> hmm. and you know one could say well perhaps that should be developed further but it seemed to be like hmm. it was a leaning towards the possibility of, of this kind of transcendence yeah hmm. even that phrase you know that i picked out from your writing of imminent non-duality it sort of sneaks hmm. in at the end of one of your texts and it's like mm, well that's interesting where could that go and it's there yeah you know, so I'm, I'm sort of rambling a little bit here. But <laughs> no, <laughs> there are several thoughts that just came to me as I was listening to you. I, th- I certainly think that a lot needs to be developed uh, in some of the later parts of some of those articles where I, I, like you say, sort of drop in concepts that to me are highly loaded or saturated with meaning, right? <laughs> which yeah. I just sort of don't spend that that article focused on, um, but which I, I'd love to do further work on if if I had the sort of right space to do it in. But to sort of feedback on what you said, too, I think to me, uh, it is it is a sort of imminence that is more horizontally oriented than vertically oriented, as, as you described it. And Deleuze talks about the plane of imminence. And to me, that um, that resonates deeply. And I think it connects deeply also to my own contemplative practice, because what I, I think of as transcendence and the way in which I orient my contemplative practices towards this uh, greater encompassing or uh, sort of greater greater encompassing awareness of myself in relation to objects in the world. And the more that I can sort of uh, integrate within my own uh, perception, understanding and awareness, uh, the sort of further I get in practice um, and the more possibilities open up. But it, it really changes how I experiment with the practice because rather than, for instance, just taking Buddhist practices, which I have learned and have um, worked with for most of my formative education, the for, sort of first five years of my Buddhist training, like Vipassana and uh, Zazen meditation and what have you, um, I'm now really trying to experiment with a sort of full presence awareness or or sort of uh, awareness of a social field and also a connection to uh, our current situation in the world, right? So also looking at sort of like uh, interaction between contemplative practice and media or or something like that where you're orienting yourself to a greater capacity to uh, integrate, uh, be aware of and sort of compassionately respond to the world, you know, the sort of the material, right? The sort of purely imminent, right? 
Um, but in a space of sort of more openness, sort of receptivity and sort of awareness of the possibilities that exist within that space, if that makes sense. So it's, it's very, you know, this, I find myself often with a few other close friends of mine, uh, doing a lot of this experimental work, um, you know, in a niche. And, and, <laughs> and I think it, it will take several more years for me to certain, certainly develop and present in a more public uh, space. But uh, that's, that's work that I'd like to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how these, these sort of needs emerge within societies for certain shifts and changes uh, within areas such as contemplative practices. The sort of trite word that comes to mind, but I think it might be best in terms of rethinking some of these ideas of practices, you know, ecological and ecology, not just in terms of the, you know, the natural environment, however we want to define or, or call that, but in the sense that an ecology of practice means relationship process, as you rightly said, um, referring back to Whitehead. And it's quite a revolutionary idea within Western spiritual practice, if it can avoid the excessive transcendence, which has tended to demarcate um, certain types of meditation practices, which ended up, this is something I've critiqued once before, there's this, this sort of jump from the individual to the universal. And I think that's characterized a lot of Western alternative spirituality, including Buddhist practice, whereby there's the individual, and then you do something like Tonglen, uh, compassionate mm -hmm. action, and it jumps immediately to the universal. And that social, ecological, environmental sphere, which is right bang there in the middle, is often sort of avoided or left out. One of the most obvious solutions, I think, in terms of using language as, as simple sort of symbolic tools for activating the collective imagination would be a return to the ecological. Uh -huh. I, like, I like what you were describing about using practice to develop a relationship with the media. Um, that's another thing I've, I've found interesting. I haven't necessarily done that. But I think a lot of folks miss out on the opportunity of exploring that plane or that middle ground of practice because it can actually be put into service of deconstructing, reevaluating the experience of selfhood, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the sense that, you know, there's, there's tension. If you open to the media, whether the obvious ones are like a story about Trump, which would probably set you off <laughs> as an American abroad. Um, for me, it might be something else. But even that, in a sense, can become a contemplative object, a meditation mm -hmm, object, mm -hmm. which can be put to the usage, as you said, of developing compassionate responses. Hmm. Yeah, and I wonder... Yeah. If that would take us naturally towards this idea of the contemplative commons, or is that another sphere entirely? Uh, certainly not another sphere, but I, before we do that, we just want to sort of do a little bridge work, which is, uh, and, and yeah, responding to this, I mean, this is, again, it's, it's um, bringing me out of sort of my shell also because the ecological dimension, uh, where clearly I'm, I'm concentrating a lot of my work now at a think tank uh, focused on sustainability, is really allowing me to integrate spiritual contemplative life with this engagement that we've been talking about. Um, and so let me just describe how that works. Um, one of the things uh, I did in my really early work is focus on just the mindfulness critique or what a lot of people called MIC mindfulness, which I think was important at that time, say three or four years ago, that I was um, – really focused on that. Uh, it was creating space, I think, for alternatives. It was creating space um, for people like myself who wanted to experiment and with mindfulness, but also just so many of the other spiritual and contemplative techniques that weren't getting a lot of attention and doing so in social or ecologically engaged ways. Um, and so it was important for me to focus for a year or so on that sort of a critique of why uh, current popular mainstream mindfulness 
based techniques were uh, primarily uh, focused on the individual um, and not really addressing structural or systemic uh, transformation. And in my view, um, uh, the, the deeper, more profound potential of transformation is the integration of the personal and collective or structural or systemic. Um, and so uh, after building a bit of a portfolio work on this sort of critique of uh, the predominant techniques that were in circulation, I then took this sort of constructive turn, which is, as you say, sort of oriented towards social and ecological space. And then in connecting with the material in those spaces was important for me because it doesn't just look at Buddhist sources, as you mentioned, uh, which tend to sort of uh, dichotomize also the two truths uh, from the Buddhist understanding, the ultimate and the relative or the conventional. Um, but I would also add that in, in certain strands of Buddhism, which is more or less within a Buddhist context, what I subscribe towards this transcendent imminent, there's an, there's an understanding that these two aren't dichotomized, that there's a pure sort of relativity or uh, ultimate sort of relativity. And so I, I think that lends itself really to uh, the new newest sort of work in ecology. If you look at Timothy Morton or if you, you know, his book on the hyper object and dark ecology, he also has interest in Buddhism and, and sort of tries to inter- integrate these traditions in a, in a critical, um, creative way. But there, there's so many others I mentioned within traditions of like new materialism and speculative realism and, and what have you uh, that sort of blend in uh, almost Buddhistic understanding or sensibility about interdependence and about um, what I'm calling pure imminence or transcendent imminence. Uh, with uh, real world issues like climate change or um, environmental racism or social injustice or inequality or what have you. So this is a a productive, creative space for me to do that kind of integrative work uh, in a way that wasn't offered to me in the formal Buddhist education I received um, so many years ago because these things are dichotomized. And also Buddhist sources were the primary source material. Uh, a lot of the traditions, because uh, I was in a you know conventional academic setting in China, um, weren't interested in, in sort of secular source materials. Certainly, nobody was interested in critical theory <laughs> um, or you know anything like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all interesting. Although it has to be said, at least for someone like myself, uh, I found you mentioned Deleuze before. Um, the speculative realism, uh, you know, as a layperson, I find them quite inaccessible. Mm. Yeah, which is a shame sometimes because I get the sense they are they are exploring thoroughly interesting themes. I just mm. I can get my head around a lot of stuff, but I just start reading and <laughs> my eyes glaze over, and that's that. Um, one person I did find interesting who who may or may not be connected to these these folks, but has taken some very original, interesting lines of exploration, which are less Buddhist and slightly more that say shamanic or ecological, is a, an anthropologist called Tim Ingold. Have you heard of him? I don't think so, no. Okay, well, this is this is a shame, and I, I think you should check out a book of his, which will resonate with some of your, your areas quite strongly. Um, he's written a book called Being Alive. It was from, I think, the early or mid-2000s, but it, it's a collection of his essays in which he explores anthropological thought and, and new ways mm. or divergent ways of thinking about a whole range of topics. It's, it's fascinating. It's an absolutely mm. excellent work. I think it deserves to be more widely read. Um, and it's accessible even for, you know, the layperson like myself. And I had the impression sometimes when I attempted to read some of the material of the speculative realists that there was some resonance between their thinking. I might mm. be wrong. Mm. I'll just throw that out there. Mm. Um, and Tim's great. Yeah, Tim's very good. No, yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
that there is another area of Buddhism I, I want to touch on, but that we, we've sort of opened the, the door, so to speak, towards the contemplative commons. Mm-hmm. Let's start exploring that a little bit. What, what do you mean by mm-hmm. that term? Is that a term you've deliberately used? Have you taken it from somewhere? And, you know, what does it symbolize? Yeah. So uh, about a year ago, um, around this time, I hosted a conference in Potsdam here at the Institute I work at uh, called the Contemplative Commons. Um, And I created the term also sort of in conversation with a colleague of mine called Vincenzo Giorgino. Uh, I later published a book with him early this year uh, called Co-Designing Economies in Transition in which we broaden or explore this idea of the contemplative commons. But the main idea is uh, to try to connect these spiritual contemplative practices to the commons, um, which is uh, in sort of more conventional speak, um, economic or political system, a way of regulating resources um, that is held in common. So that you can think of in... The earlier literature, like by Eleanor Ostrom, who uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work on this, uh, she described the commons as common pool resources, uh, and they can include anything like the the atmosphere, the air. She did a lot of work on water systems. Um, But it's actually much deeper than that because the commons is not just an object like a set of common pool resources. It's it's also a, a way of organizing society. And with that comes uh, particular uh, structures of value, particular ways of relating with each other in common. Um, And that's really actually what I'm interested in. Um, I called this in one of my articles, the more than human commons, where I try to, again, sort of integrate the spiritual contemplative work that I do with uh, uh, an understanding of the commons in a much broader and deeper sense um, of our relationships uh, to each other and to uh, the non-human world. Um, and that's something I'm interested in because it's, again, uh, situating my work in a much more constructive way away from a critique of capitalism or the predominant mindfulness techniques or what have you that are um, embedded within but usually not questioning the sort of uh, systemic problems that we have. Um, but rather what I'm trying to do is uh, experiment with these uh, practices and values within uh, the commons within an understanding of how to reorganize society or how society could be different. But also, frankly, in in many parts of the world, uh, the commons is the predominant mode of uh, social reproduction. Um, So there are many spaces in which the commons is the sort of default. Um, And so uh, there's plenty of ways in which we can already understand uh, how commons create um, new ways of relating to each other and um, reorganizing society in a sustainable and just way. So I'm, I'm just sort of trying to understand spirituality and contemplative practice then in this alternative, this sort of uh, more sustainable and just space, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's just one question for clarification. Um, yeah. Are you then suggesting that um, contemplative practices become a commons, as in something huh. that could be shared freely? Or <laughs> yes. are you saying... <laughs> Yeah, uh, the contemplative aspect becomes an approach to understanding the commons because they're yeah. slightly different things, right? Yeah, it's funny because I, I actually intended both. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is also why I like the term because it has a sort of dual valence. Uh, and, we, and I've talked with my colleague Vincenzo, but also uh, several other colleagues who were part of that conference and developing um, networks and infrastructures uh, that were open source that were allow the, the sh- free sharing and 
sort of like an, an open source way, uh, contemplative practices, techniques, information, what have you. So that's uh, the first definition that you mentioned, which is um, part of what I mean by the contemplative commons. And the second uh, is as true as well, that uh, I'm trying to understand how contemplative practice may be embedded within um, a society organized around the commons, that we all take care of each other, um, that we um, distribute, um, resources according to needs and capacities, uh, that we fundamentally are oriented around sustainability and justice. Um, and then there's plenty of work on the commons. And like I said, communities that are already, um, oriented around the commons so that we can start to, um, understand this contemplative spiritual sort of psychosocial aspect of the commons. And that's what I also mean by the contemplative commons. Mm-hmm. Just thinking out loud, could there be some conflict between, let's say, globalization and global capital and the local and universal coming into play here? The Commons is a fascinating discussion in and of itself, and I wonder sometimes if it might be a more effective form of resistance towards the the sort of neoliberal agenda of monetizing absolutely everything. I don't know if that could happen. I mean, we were seeing the privatization of water in Europe, for example, which is scandalous. But at the same time, if we're taking contemplative practices, which are almost always embedded within specific societies and historical social constructs, um, isn't there a conflict there between, let's say, attempting to make those a sort of universal commons available freely to all and then the juxtaposition with the sort of local and issues of appropriation have you given some thought to that um yeah 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 um no this is a great question uh so i often also use the term sort of commoning indifference because i think there's a way in which if you understand a commons as an object then you think of it as a global commons and you say uh, create a governance system around it that um is global in nature and but it doesn't respect local differentiation, then you fall into that problem. Uh, but in my understanding also of the commons, uh, often that's not the case. Uh, so a lot of the commons work comes out uh, in Western European context from like the degrowth movement, but uh, it already exists um, a lot in Latin America and in other countries. And in those countries, it's always locally defined. Um, And as I said, it's usually the predominant sort of mode of social reproduction. So uh, it's embedded within a cultural um, environment uh, that is shaping and shaped by the commons. Um, And so it's interesting because it's then providing uh, a sort of common common space shared by the community and and, and, uh, is also sort of transnational, right? And and the way in which now these commons are coming together to form sort of um, assemblies or coalitions, uh, which is in in many cases unique, actually, uh, because we've always had commons, as I said, but what we're, what really we're experimenting now is is a, another phase of, I'd say, like the commons movement of a sort of modern commons movement that brings together these these older forms of commoning with the newer forms of commoning like digital peer production or, you know, many people are familiar with Wikipedia, which is a kind of commons um, and urban, urban commons um, and trying to sort of connect these in a sort of transnational movement. And the reason I mention this is because then it's it's both global, but also very much locally defined. And um, if you investigate the commons movement, that's always what you find, that it's almost always local movements or municipal movements uh, at the level of the city uh, that are connecting with each other and sharing resources. 
So how would this look in practical terms, this contemplative commons? What's actually happening? Is it just an idea that you're playing with or is it something you see as a developing material potential? Yeah, uh, so it's a bit a bit of both. Um, there's a lot of other work that I'm doing around it. This is just sort of one uh, sort of sub-project that I'm personally focused on with a couple of people uh, within the commons movement and contemplative movements. To describe the potential, I would say first that... Uh, the newer work in the commons movement um, that communicates the commons in the deeper, broader way that I communicated it earlier about the more than human commons is come to a point of understanding that underlying the commons uh, is a sort of relational ontology, uh, which uh, we talked about earlier in this podcast. Um, and I think that that really um, lends itself then to contemplative uh, practice and what we also talked about. If you if you know the work of, say, Peter Doran, also he's done work on the contemplative commons, understanding how contemplative practice is sort of an antidote or a, a way of resisting capital and cognitive capture, uh, capture of our attention. Um, that's one application. Uh, I'm also, though, interested in understanding how these practices uh, could could be, as you said earlier, too, relational practices. Because I, I'm not interested at all in mindfulness, especially as it's become individualized and capitalized on. Uh, but I, but I am interested in a relational form of contemplative practice where we're not just uh, taking the breath as an object of meditation, but we're where we're taking our relationships to others as objects of meditation, or what I said earlier, like media. So changing the object of of meditation to something that's relational, and that's not just a theory. Uh, that's something that you can uh, experiment with by designing specific practices, and that's something else that I tried to do about a year ago with another colleague of mine, Ed Ng and, and Ron Purser in um, Berkeley uh, at a conference we had on making refuge. So it's an ongoing project, but, uh, you know, it's it's sort of and it's sort of nascent. Um, but um, I see some interesting creative potential in it. Yeah, good. That sounds great. I like to hear about people willing to experiment with different we're creating different types of, of, of meditation practices, contemplative tasks and experiences and so forth. I'm, I'm trying to find the right way to, uh, to sort of frame all this. Um, I think there's sometimes a little bit of a potential contradiction between the some of the themes that run through activist culture and then the development of something new. In the sense that, obviously, and rightly so, there's been some very interesting critique and analysis of the relationship between Westerners, Americans and, and Europeans with Buddhism as it's emerged within the States and Europe. One of my mo more, let's say, more interesting areas for me has been Tibet, because that's been the, the, the primary source of practice that I've gone to for many years. And um, there have been interesting texts looking at how Westerners have, in many ways, carried out very colonial-focused analysis of Tibet. They've romanticized it. They've kind of thrown absolutely every intellectual fallacy, you know, we've got at Tibet. And in the end, you know, here we are. One of the views I've held loosely for some time is that, you know, for one of the ways to get around sort of accusations of appropriation and, you know, colonialism and so forth would actually be to develop and then adopt and adapt uh, new forms of uh, practice within a sort of Buddhist framework, but that mm. are, in a sense, developing a truly Western form of Buddhism, not as something that's superior to, that doesn't play on that sort of banal dichotomy, but recognizes, you know, that Buddhism does need to 
does evolve, has historically evolved, and has changed quite dramatically in different contexts to remain relevant and remain a source of liberational possibility that's safe for individuals and groups within a specific historical reality. It sounds to me, in part, that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Do you see any tension between your exploration of that and some of these notions of respect for tradition and other cultures? Yeah. Certainly. Uh, so, so to get, uh, I mean, this is, thank you again for this uh, question. It's great. Um, at the very beginning of the discussion, we sort of were laughing about the pervasiveness of struggle or challenge. And I said, my challenge is to integrate. And I think uh, this is another one of my um, great challenges that I, I is present through all of my work. Um, to speak specifically, though, about what I'm doing uh, at the moment, um, I'm working with, and, and you know, sort of Ed N on a, a project on decolonial Buddhism, which is a sort of um, sequel or successor to the the workshop we had I just mentioned called Making Refuge in Berkeley. And that's focused exactly on what you uh, describe a sort of retranslation of Buddhism, a sort of understanding of heritage Buddhism um, that's that's decolonial in orientation. And and so much of the, the work that I did with Ed and myself, also even on the critique of mindfulness, uh, it wasn't simply a critique. And this is how it was often misunderstood, to be, to be quite frank. It wasn't simply a, a critique. It was also a process of retranslation, uh, which again, which is why I mentioned it was a critical constructive project, that we weren't just throwing stones, that we were also trying to open up space for alternatives for experimental and creative work about how um, contemplative practice was adapted and, and used in different cultural contexts, but also in, again, socially and ecologically engaged ways. Uh, so that's always been uh, a common thread throughout my work. And yes, it's certainly tricky and it's a struggle and, I, and I'm working through that. Um, but I agree with you in the sense that my interest is in, is in honoring the debt that I have and the obligations that I have and the inheritances that I have with uh, my Chinese Buddhist education. And, and I hold that um, to heart. Uh, and at the same time, I, I can't my, – my sort of identity, my – is not completely reflected in predominantly Chinese Buddhist spaces. And so there's a sort of um, translation process that's happening within me and has always been happening in which I am uh, taking the Buddhist practices that I've learned um, and trying to integrate them within my own life journey in a way that also uh, respects uh, my own, as I said earlier, like political or activist values and understandings of, um, for instance, uh, a desire to, you know, not be complicit in patriarchy or white supremacy or um, some of the values that I hold that, uh, quite frankly, in, in many Buddhist spaces are sort of disregarded, uh, even though they're always present. Um, and so it's a sort of matter of working with others who are similarly aligned like Ed, uh, who respect the traditions and um, understand that there's an ongoing appropriation, as you mentioned, happening through which Westerners appropriate Buddhism and then um, claim a certain authority or superiority uh, by which they, they say they <laughs> they they have the, the the proper understanding of Buddhism, um, and so it's really it's a power play, um, and it's 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 uh, enmeshed within a history of white supremacy and colonization that often is goes unrecognized, 
Um, and we see that a lot also in the mainstream mindfulness movement, um, to name but one space. So it's, it's both negotiating that and at the same time doing some kind of translation work because I'm, I'm not just adopting, I'm not a Chinese Buddhist from that context who adopts everything that I receive, right? I'm, I'm also still struggling with the legacies of white supremacy and patriarchy and uh, just the terrible climate crisis and everything else that I'm struggling with. So, you know, it's push and pull. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of struggle right there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, I think one of the the fascinating things about, you know, activism and the current climate which is expressed most let's say um stereotypically through the culture wars in America which has so many things American leaks out into the rest of the world. And one of the things that I I do find interesting is the the identities involved in it all because obviously identity politics has become uh, a much more powerful and vocal force in the culture war at present. Um, and I find that interesting from a variety of perspectives. And one idea I like that I've, I've taken, I'm not sure from where, but it's a simple concept, is this idea of viewing through different lenses. Hmm. So I think it's very interesting to take a lens like colonialism or, you know, universalization of truth and use that as a lens to analyze, you know, what's taking place within a community or within a discourse community such as that of mindfulness. Hmm. Um, but I think maybe, you know, talking about the contemplative commons, that's one thing that, that Buddhism has as a resource that might help, I think, the, the sort of activist community, which is mm. find a sort of healthier relationship to the fixation on identities. Mm. And, you know, I understand that identity politics is in a sense a reaction to a whole set of political forces and historical circumstances. But I, I tend to find myself a little bit uncomfortable with certain aspects of it because it sort of fossilizes people into fixed identities. I think it'd be interesting if we had a contemplative commons that provided not only an mm. education on the history of colonialism and, you know, cultural appropriation and so forth, but that could be accompanied by mm. skills and tools that allow individuals mm. to go deeply into that understanding because it is transformative and it does disrupt current discourse and it does disrupt the normalcy of certain, you know, beliefs and behaviors. But at the same time, you know, gain a tool that would allow them not to sort of fall into despair or, you know, some of the emotional reactivity, which tends to mm. bind certain folks to an, a new ideology. And then it becomes a sort of, the, you know, the, the old ideological formation of a new subject, which has good intentions, had, has good causes, but may not actually bring in that creative capacity to think beyond mm. that dichotomy of us and them or, Mm -hmm. colonialism and non-colonialism because i think that's one of the dangers of the current political climate you know across the political spectrum from far left to far right and everywhere in between mm. there's there's a lot of mania involved and there's a lot of intensification in a lot of european societies due to so many global factors all coming in at once and one great thing would be i think not just to jump into mindfulness and find retreat from it or find space but actually as you were describing harness a range of new contemplative tools would allow people to go deeply into new new theoretical spaces but also develop a certain degree of robustness but also a creative spirit towards looking towards that transcendent possibility of us finding a way forwards mm. which is not just you know losing ourselves mm. in the imminence of despair and again mm. i would suggest that i you know i'm picking up flavors of that both in your writing and your discourse today mm. 
And it makes me think of um, uh, an ideational shift that's taking place, which you seem aligned with, but I don't know if you, you know much about it, which is this idea of metamodernism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, which I think is interesting. I, I don't know how, how it's being used. I've kind of appropriated it willingly. Um, you've already got purists within the metamodern movement arguing against some of the appropriation that's taken mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, again, as a very um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. down-to-earth workable tool that it's, it's where you're heading. And it's this mm-hmm. desire to encompass different strains of thought. Uh, from different geographical locations and zones, mm. but avoid falling into the simple dichotomies of, you know, hope and despair, transcendence and imminence, you know, mm. um, guilt and pride, and, and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm. So, mm. what do you think about that? Again, I'm rambling mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. because this mm-hmm. conversation is quite fluid. But mm-hmm. those are a few thoughts that come to mind that are perhaps a response to mm. what you, you said previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I'd say two two major things. I mean, there, yeah, there's a lot interesting in there. Uh, the first, though, is just back to your point about identity politics, because I, I I think it's important to recognize the validity of identity politics from a particular position or perspective, which is that just like we would say in a contemplative or spiritual context, it's important to have a healthy ego, right, before you destroy the ego and engage in sort of non-dual practice. I think um, it's important to recognize the the autonomy and the rights of populations in context of oppression to, to affirm those rights and so insofar as they don't have them, uh, certain identity politics is necessary. And I also recognize that um, the process of reification around identity is in itself inherently problematic. Uh, so I think there's a sort of pragmatic and strategic move where identity politics can be useful. But I also think um, there needs to be, and this is why I now talk about commoning, a sense in which we live together. Uh, so in the commons movement, uh, there's this idea of conviviality that I really resonate with. And I, and I said before that I use this term sometimes commoning indifference. And what I just mean by that is that we have to respect and celebrate difference at the same time that we're living together and we're sharing and we're, you know, in, in common space. Um, and, and it lends itself to the prior discussion we had about transcendent imminence um, but also to what you you mentioned about the reification of identities, because I think we have to get to a point of organizing society around a celebration and understanding of difference, but also one where we share the the basic necessities of life and and uh, sources of flourishing. So that's the first point. The second point, um, I would say around metamodernism. So I'm certainly it's it's great that you mentioned that. Um, have been familiar with that since the beginning of uh, of that discourse a few years ago. Um, because it's, it's, uh, doing what you said, basically it's, it's trying to, um, understand in in a global context, how these different discourses are are working, but also, uh, the meta in, in meta modernism is sort of, uh, neither modernism or postmodernism. It's what some also call post -post postmodernism, which is a discussion maybe for another time, (laughs) but, uh, but basically it's trying to, um, understand the power of narratives and myths, which I think, uh, we've lost uh, sight of, uh, in which, uh, the move from modernism to postmodernism was implicated in because many of the postmodernists, if you, for instance, remember, uh, Frederick Jameson famously said, like, uh, the postmodern move is to deny meta narratives, uh, to deny any, any sort of element of transcendence. 
And the meta modernists are saying that uh, narratives and and even meta narratives and, and myth is mythos is is perennial. It's important. It's it's always a part of the human condition. But there is a more sophisticated understanding now from their perspective of of the function of myth, actually from a functionalist perspective, almost that people subscribe um, to uh, a myth and in, in, insofar as they subscribe to it in, in a conscious way where they understand the limits or boundaries of that, um, then it can serve a strategic, as I said, sort of political or pragmatic function. But it has certain boundaries so that you're not entirely consumed by the mythos. Uh, in a way that the transcendence uh, more formally defined in in modernism and before really was tied up with uh, aspects of delusion and and, um, a sort of false transcendence. Uh, These modernist notions of sort of transcendence or narrative or mythos are are, um, much more constrained. Um, And if, you know, I read a book called, uh, I I think it was like post-postmodernism and sort of the theory thereof, where it talked about um, your Listeners might know the movie. Um, uh, what was it? You know where they had. Oh, now I have to describe it. <laughs> where they? <laughs> uh, where they? It's it's uh, sort of happens to me all the time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. As much as I love movies, yeah, it's it's this one where um, it takes place in India, and um, it's a sort of inner spiritual movie about a a boat that goes down and um. The main character goes on a lifeboat with a tiger and a monkey and a... Ah, the life of uh, Pi or P. Yeah, yeah, life of Pi. Thank you. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good uh, illustration of uh, the meta-modernist notion of um, sort of transcendence or mythos. Because if you recall that movie, at the end, um, the audience realizes that there are actually two stories. There's a story that you um, are told throughout the course of the movie about this this lion and or this uh, tiger and this monkey. Um, and then there's actually the reality that that was just a sort of myth, right? But there's a sort of suspension of disbelief that happens that uh, is in a way more beautiful. <laughs> and insofar as you are willing to suspend your disbelief, there's a certain function or a certain um, pragmatic value to that. So that's what they're talking about. The last thing that I just really quickly want to mention is that this is not just a matter of modernist discourse, that uh, I'm uh, part of my other work uh, in China is focused on what they call constructive postmodernism. And that also comes from the context of whitehead and process philosophy, but which they're adapting to their unique cultural context in China to discuss the integration of Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and issues uh, around the development of the country itself. So that Constructive postmodernism to me also in a global context means that the Chinese don't want to adopt the Western or industrial model of modernization, that they want to think through that model, uh, take what's good, you know, leave what's bad and sort of create their own model of development. And that uh, has ripple effects across all different sectors of society. So this constructive postmodern movement in China has established 35 centers in different departments and academies around the country to discuss the applications to architecture, to design or to agriculture, to education and how uh, they would create something that's more, say, meta-modern or, or constructive postmodern. that's not just taking wholesale what the West offers as resources, but that's so, somehow adapting it to their cultural context and the, the current environment. That's interesting. Yeah, very. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the um, Whitehead's a funny one, isn't he? he uh, he's been called many things from mystic to, you know, genius and so forth. But uh, 
his thought is intriguing. And I think one of the qualities he had might be a useful one for the, for the rest of us. And it could even be a, a feature of this contemplative commons, which is uh, he had a certain curiosity uh, about almost everything. And as far as I understand about his life story, he was um, he was incredibly generous with his time and his spirit of inquiry hmm. and encouraged that in, in others. He, uh, hmm. I don't know if you know much about his history, he created these sort of salons in his house hmm. where he would bring together different types of thinkers from multiple disciplines both professional and non-professional, and he would uh, do his best to sort of cultivate uh, a, a space of collective contemplation hmm. in which they would examine some of the big questions of their day. And hmm. uh, one of the good things about his character was he had this good ability to not place himself in the position of, you know, the great knower, the authority. Uh, he was kind of like, hmm. you know, a bit of an empty cup, to use a sort of Chinese metaphor. Hmm. But... Um, that sounds really interesting. I mean, China's a, a fascinating topic at present. Um, one thing I find interesting about the, the Chinese situation and uh, the emergence of China as the next sort of superpower is the tension between what we might call the sort of dictatorial aspects of their society, yeah. which are manifesting at the moment. I don't know if you've seen an article about this that came out last week about this um, this citizen control system they're using, yeah, you know, yeah. where everybody gets like... Uh, yeah a sort of Facebook rating. A right. uh, very interesting article. I'll have to dig it out and put it in the show notes, actually, because everybody should read it. One of the things they're doing, you know, is they're evaluating the value of their citizens through mass facial scanning right. and facial recognition software and then automatically downgrading their access to services without actually informing them. So, you know, if you're not a good enough yeah. citizen, you lose access to high-speed travel. Right. Eventually, you're not allowed to leave your state. I mean, this is this is incredible. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how these philosophical explorations develop in that kind of climate and, you know, to what end they end up being purposed. Yeah. Because I think, you know, if China was to develop, let's say, more of a benevolent streak and yeah. its participation in the global project of the evolution of our species, I think it has a huge amount to offer. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, to what degree that tension will hold it back or eventually be broken. Yeah. Um, because, you know, from what you're describing, I mean, that sounds like a, a potentially huge contribution to yeah. the idea of the contemplative commons, right? Yes. So <laughs> that's, it's fascinating how this conversation evolves with that. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. yeah, no, really, because so uh, for, you know, 15 years, I've been involved in China doing work there. And my undergraduate degree was in Chinese, specifically East Asian studies. But uh, for the exact reasons you mentioned, that's why I do work in China. It's a country of contradictions. It has uh, immense potential, in my view, but it also has uh, just massive problems, domestic problems, and increasingly a sort of streak of authoritarianism, not just at home, but also sort of imperialism, which I, I think only, yeah. only a few people are sort of uh, seeing, uh, but is is present, uh, certainly in the colonization of Africa and the, the banks that they're creating, the one belt, one road policy to connect all of Asia and uh, the increasing sort of military might it's uh, exercising in the East China Sea and, and what have you, uh, but especially on the domestic population and the social credit score that you just mentioned um, and some of the initiatives they're taking around policing, especially in uh, Tibet and Xinjiang, which have always been the case. So, I, you know, I see both. And, and I've been sort of uh, on the ground in China, as I said, for five years and had have been back and forth for years. And I, I, I want to cultivate uh, the positive potentials in that country because I see uh, both how it could go so wrong, but also how much uh, the, the, the 
world actually could gain from a more positive outcome within within that country. I think inevitably in the global complex civilization that we all live in, uh, China is a is a major player, uh, and it's a multipolar world. It's it's no longer sort of the you know, even the West and the East, but China plays a really important role in defining policy and shaping uh, global economic uh, policy. And and so, w- you know, one of the major strains of my work now is on what's called ecological civilization. And I just really quickly will mention what that is, which is the Chinese vision for their own development Um and I sort of mentioned earlier, theoretically, like how they're acad- within academic spaces, at least working with constructive postmodernism to um, adapt the Western industrial model to fit uh, their own situation, but also to create something genuinely novel. And ecological civilization is the sort of development framework that was written into the Constitution in 2007 and that is now implemented with a whole host of uh, policy frameworks to engage a sort of positive vision that is sustainable, that is equitable, and and that really brings out the positive potential of what um, the country can offer and is integrated within the cultural context. So again, it's uh, relying on Buddhist, Taoist, and Confucian sort of cultural heritages. So I'm working with stakeholders in China to develop that vision of a future that I find very positive and encouraging. And at the same time, I'm very understanding that there are a lot of uh, resistance to that vision, even within China, even even those who proclaim to uh, support ecological civilization often have a very shallow understanding in my interpretation. So it's it's really I'm trying to work with the more progressive voices within China and also people within civil society, more grassroots activists to um, really leverage the potential the country has uh, for the global situation. Yeah. Yeah, humans are humans after all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and I think it, I think the development and expansion of China is going to be it's going to be interesting. Well, to relate it to the, the conversation we've been having so far, is it's going to be interesting to connect that to the activist work because I think one of the the eases, uh, in a sense, the ease for many activists, and you know, I grew up as one, by the way marching against Thatcher and uh-huh. economic policies in the 80s and 90s with a Marxist dad. So I'm very familiar with, with that world. Um, and since I've been a kid, you know, America has always been the big bad boogeyman uh-huh. um, for left-leaning activists. And I think China is going to present an interesting challenge to that. And maybe that will eventually mm-hmm. provide the correction to the excessively local activism that we're often seeing, uh-huh. which I think is also, um, this would be one of my criticisms of it, is it often leaves aside class struggle, which I think is a unifying force. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it shouldn't leave it beside. It should add to it and enrich in it. Yeah. And I think that's when identity politics will long-term continue to have a value when it finds, let's say, an ecological relationship with class struggle and with global struggle and with, you know, emancipation in its its widest global sense. Hmm. And I think, you know, China's going to make that a very interesting ground of exploration. And um, hmm. it's great to hear that what you're doing. Uh, I like these ideas that you're discussing, this unification of these different systems of thought and practice. My only concern with China is that, you know, China's, I think one of the, the great fail, failings of Western intellectuals is that, especially, you know, political and economic, economic intellectuals, is they've often failed to remember their history when they evaluate China. And they seem to have this very odd notion that China would somehow 
develop, you know, and you yeah. be happy and content yeah. just to hang around in the background in America's shadow. And I mean, anybody who had that idea must have been a complete fool. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, China has such a rich history and there's a lot of pride in that history. And, you know, a lot of, let's say, you know, national pride. And uh, it's foolish to think that wouldn't emerge as people became more affluent. Anyway, there uh -huh, it is. Uh -huh. uh, the, the, you know, I, I don't want to get too much off topic. One of the questions that comes up, which I think we have to deal with individually and collectively, both in the political and social sphere, and the environmental sphere, but also in, the, say, the religious, spiritual, meditational, contemplative spheres, is this basic question of what is transformation? What does it mean to transform? And mm -hmm. to what end and what vision drives our sense of what transformation should serve? Because I think that's a nice way to round off our discussion, and it mm. ties together the mindfulness movement, um, the idea of contemplative practices, which perhaps have a more mystical leaning, and, you know, global issues of participation in civil and social society. You know, what does transformation mean for somebody who's deeply embedded in critical theory or certain strands of postmodern thought or the metamodernism mm. that's emerging? Um, individual practice as a mindfulness teacher or practitioner. One thing I think is that you could probably view mindfulness in one way, as one of the first true initial original manifestations of Western Buddhism, um, which brings up issues of why it gets critiqued and mindfulness and all of that. But I think it's also reflective of so much of what's dysfunctional about the current ideology in the West. And that's something you've written about, along with Edwin and Ron Purser, of course, and we talked about it here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if, you know, the next development in, in a Western form of Buddhism would be devoid of the fallacy of universalization and perennialism, which, you know, John Kabat-Zinn could be quite easily accused of. Um, and I think, you know, sort of superiority mm -hmm. and that sort of transcendence into a higher plane of being above or superior actually goes hand in hand with universalization. I think they're almost inseparable. And perhaps, you know, an ecological model um, could be developed more fully in the West, and perhaps that would that would end up becoming a very interesting bridge towards a sort of 21st century Dharma and a loosest uh, sense mm. of the term. Um, and perhaps, you know, ecological really is the way to go, and that's where we're going to get away from the, the fallacy of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness's obsession with the individual and their capacity to cope and adapt to mm. circumstances and tolerate and, you know, just allow them to to do what they do basically to become mm -hmm. ideological subjects but be to be happy about it right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah certainly i mean so you mentioned it uh john kabat-zinn you know and if you read his writings around mindfulness-based stress reduction and the sort of dharma that to him is somehow um an implicit part of uh, those programs he is coming from a position of sort of perennialism or, or sort of Understanding the Dharma as the truth uh, and at the same time doesn't make that often explicit within the, within the programming. Um, and I think that's the great problem, but it, it is endemic to the, the, the practice in the field often um, also, also just contemplative studies um, and, and mindfulness in general because, you know, there's a way in which 
these practices are validated through science in a sort of value-free way. And we assume that the, you know, undergraduates in the United States who are the sort of subjects of the studies are somehow representative. And there's just a whole host of problems uh, that are really often unacknowledged, uh, except by, you know, experts working, some experts working within the field. Um, and it's unfortunate because then the, the techniques in the public sphere are presented as this, the sort of answer for everyone. And, you know, if, if you've also been following maybe like Willoughby Britain's research and some of the new work on the sort of varieties of contemplative practices and that's important just insofar as it's the first major step in towards, towards understanding um, how these practices have actually been detrimental to a certain percentage of the population uh, simply because they uh, weren't provided in an appropriate context and the people weren't given the appropriate support. And so they ended up going through psychiatric episodes or having really difficult, disturbing experiences. So that really debunks, in my view, the notion of uh, universalism in a very practical uh, and sort of hard-hitting way. But my answer would certainly be, again, with the metaphor of commenting to sort of distribute um, the way in which these practices are, are culturally defined by communities according to their own needs and sort of rather than presenting a practice, let's open up the space for more experimentation like what we've been talking about during this podcast and let's do it with a respect for where these practices are also coming from. It's not that, you know, we need to just engage in spiritual shopping either. It's, it's important to uh, respect the resources that do exist within Buddhist or other traditions because they're um, – they're just so rich. Um, and at the same time, like you said, there's a certain cultural translation that is inevitable. So it's, I think it's holding that tension between the two. But any move towards universalism, um, which is so prevalent within the mainstream discourses, is really, a, again, a sort of political power play. And it it's does a disservice to a lot of people. And I, and I am afraid the impact is often felt but not discussed. Yeah, it's also intellectually lazy. Um, and it's sometimes difficult to say whether it's deliberate or not, uh, whether it's just the outcome of, of basic ignorance. It's one of the reasons I've been keen on, you know, taking a taking a stand in a sense in these podcast episodes against anti-intellectualism, because uh, my, the first word that comes to mind in listening to what you said is these people need to be more honest. Yeah. They need to have a greater you know, degree of honesty about what they're actually doing and their claims. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's difficult to be honest about something if you don't really have the contextual understanding. And one thing that certainly seems to be true for many Western Buddhists and spiritual practitioners in general is there's very often a lack of historical understanding and uh, historical context, which mm -hmm. I think is one of the reasons why, you know, the making of Buddhist modernism by McMahon was such a useful book. And, you know, books by uh, Donald S. Lopez are very useful because... They're filling that gap. And as soon as you get some of the historical context yeah. for how these practices emerged here, how they were transmitted, the way they were couched in certain types of language, yeah. that sort of fantasy about perennialism and universalism and us all being one soon yeah. fall apart, yeah. right? They soon become these sort of clearly these romantic constructions that people have fantasized about and turned into a sort of new form of doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings up a question, I think, which again is another tension that exists for the type of project you're involved in and is actually um, mirrored in some of the work by Willoughby Britain, which is the lack of expertise. Um, you know, there's that sort of tension between 
experimentation, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. exploration, mm-hmm. and then recognizing that actually, if that's poorly done, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. things can go awry, mm-hmm. and people can suffer. Mm-hmm. And again, perhaps honesty is one of the best policies and, you know, having a clearly written warning that doesn't make great promises. But there is there is a recognition, I think, here that needs to be made more explicit, that is, these practice traditions, as you rightly said, they have very, very long histories, and they have cultural context, but they also have, you know, a long developmental history in mm. which all of these practices are codified mm. within a set of beliefs, identities, uh, social norms, which in one sense can be um, examined critically, can be deconstructed, but on the other hand are also, in a sense, often the fail-safes that allow people to make progress through practices without getting utterly mm. lost, without falling into, mm. you know... The different types of psychological dysfunction, whether it's sort of megalomania and mm. sort of a sense of superiority, and then you know despair and depression in a psychological episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You don't have to have an answer to any of that stuff. I mean, no, <laughs> just thinking out loud. Yeah, I mean, I more or less agree. So I, there's not much I yeah. have to say. But it's it's uh, when I also say experimentation, I. I um, what I also mean, which is probably worth making explicit, is that it's done in, again, the way that you described um, with respect to also the traditions, you know, the sort of packages around which uh, these practices are provided. Because, you know, there's a whole, the, the practices were never uh, extracted and isolated in the ways that the secular mindfulness movement um, have done, historically speaking. Uh, they were, as you said, sort of contextualized around a sort of developmental trajectory um, and also a cultural sort of environment, aesthetic environment. And there's so many components to it that supported one's practice and gave oneself a sort of support, um, which I think is important for any kind of experimentation that you have to the, conceive of the contemplative practice as uh, embedded within a contemplative life world, I would say, mm-hmm. and all that comes with that. Um, and so that's the kind of experimentation I'm, I'm thinking of also, because I've also had similar experiences where colleagues of mine um, sort of implemented a practice for um, a, a, a group of people in a way that I thought was unethical um, because, and it ended up hurting people. Um, and, I, and I think that's deeply um, problematic. And so any, any kind of experimentation needs to be very conscious and done by people who know what they're doing, which isn't to say it can't be done. But yeah. All right. Well, look, we're getting close to the end of our time. Is there anything you'd like to add in or chuck into the mix before we close? Mm, nothing comes to mind in particular, except just thank you for having me and inviting me. And the questions are great. I appreciate the discussion. <laughs> Good. We can always talk about another uh, yeah. film reference if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should make a plug then because I'm thinking of having a contemplative cinema event in, say, six months or a year. So but we don't know what films yet. <laughs> yeah, pl- plug away. But presumably that's going to be in uh, Berlin, right? Uh, presumably. We haven't decided yet. <laughs> Could be fun, though. You're all invited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all invited to Berlin. Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would just say one last thing, actually, um, to finish up the point you were discussing before, which is that I know Glenn Wallace has tried this um, in his, you know, very diplomatic and uh, gentle style to, you know, get Buddhist teachers to start to think critically about their own practices, you know, established Buddhist teachers. And there's been quite a lot of resistance to that, which 
I think it's a shame. I mean, I, I think perhaps with patience and uh, gentle insistence, we we might manage to persuade more long-term Buddhist teachers to to get on board with some of the ideas we've been discussing today. Um, hmm. And perhaps the nature of the current climate we live in will eventually promote them to do so. Hmm. Um, hmm. Because it takes time, right? It takes, I mean, hmm. you know, I've been involved with Buddhism for 25 years, and I can say that, you know, I started to... I want to choose my words carefully here. Let's say that transformation in a very real world sense, in align with some of what we've been talking about today, didn't take place for the first 15 years. Those first 15 years were learning techniques, practicing within traditions, you know, moving in and out of sort of identification with certain Buddhist beliefs and identities, trying them out, trying out other ones, being comfortable, being uncomfortable exploring beliefs, you know, sort of modifying myself by forming myself into the image of the group and then finding that uncomfortable. And all of that sort of movement, for me at least, was practice. But it, it you know, it took a long time for me to get to the point where as a, a mature and intellectually honest person, I could actually say, okay, this is what I'm actually yeah. doing, you know, without yeah. it being strictly codified by the tradition. And mm -hmm. that's a mm -hmm. real challenge. I think that's a real challenge for the survival of Buddhism in the West. Um, and I don't know how that would look in, in the East. Again, uh, sorry for that lazy dichotomy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, mindfulness, whether we like it or not, whether we understand what's wrong with it or not, has been a response to many of the limitations of Buddhism as it's evolved in the West and has been hugely successful mm -hmm. for a great variety of reasons. But I think one reason that... that Western Buddhist teachers or those aligned with more traditional Buddhist forms have to be honest about, which is that it has been a very successful adaption to Western culture in many ways. Um, and one of the questions mm -hmm. will be, you know, is, will it be possible to create a network of participants, both more experienced and less experienced, willing to participate along the sort of ethical lines you've been laying out in order to produce mm -hmm. something attractive enough and robust enough and well informed enough to give to open up new spaces and possibilities, um, you know that's a question mm -hmm. I have. It's a question I think that's open, mm -hmm. and I think that's going to be something you are obviously mm -hmm. going to be working with over the next few years. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I'd love to continue the conversation um, with you, Glenn, and, and anyone else. I mean, for for myself, it's. Um, the focus of that project I mentioned on decolonial dharma, because I also, and this is maybe. <laughs> Uh, for another time, but I have also the, a complicated relationship to Buddhism. Um, I think a lot of us do. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it, it was not unlike what you described that in the beginning, um, I was not an entirely mature person and, and just sort of followed the practices as I think is, is natural for one to, to begin doing um, because you don't have the level of awareness of what actually is happening. And, and at the same time, you want to really give yourself over uh, to the tradition and practices and understand it in an intimate way and, and um, not in an appropriative way. But after years of that experience, um, I've sort of formed this more complicated hybrid, if you will, sort of identity of, of Buddhist and other. Um, Buddhist and other. <laughs> Buddhist and other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So <laughs> Well, you know, in, a, in an ecological view, I mean, that's the way of things, isn't it? You don't get to be just one thing, right? And that's, yeah. that's in a sense, yeah. as well, part of the the value, I think, of the of identity politics when it functions effectively. It's actually pointing that out, right? As is the, the sort of the, yeah. the, the, the sort of um, 
the stereotypical image of postmodernism, which is true in some way, which is it, it does disband the fallacy that there can be just one thing. It's always multiple. And that multiplicity certainly lends itself to a more ecological view. So perhaps, perhaps if we're mm. lucky, um, Zach, there's a certain degree of inevitability about our species mm. moving towards a, 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 mm. a new sort of revivified, you know, reimagined creative engagement with um, an ecological mm. worldview that won't just resonate with some mm. aspects of Buddhism, but perhaps some of the the pre shamanic, you know, uh, pre Buddhist, sorry, shamanic mm. ecologically based spiritualities that you know have been around for a long time, mm. often being destroyed, and still exist so often at the margins within Buddhist traditions too, right? Entirely. That's. Uh, I feel like this is opening up to another conversation. Stop. Stop. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, but, but entirely. I mean, I'm at the moment writing about the ecological paradigm, and so I. This is my greatest hope: is that um, the sort of paradigm shift that you describe is happening, and it's. Uh, yeah, you can see it all over, and I think if if the dystopias around us uh, don't sort of take over and gain more power, um, then there will be this alternative possibility of. Uh, ecological ways of living that will have ramifications for reorganizing all different ways of, of life, right? Including religious institutions like Buddhism. Um, so that's my great hope as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, good bit of hope, grounded in imminence. Let's go for that, shall we? That's a good, that's a yeah, good place yeah. to end. Grounded in, in hard yeah, work. Yeah. Day-to-day yeah, yeah. day, day, day work. That's right, that's right. Okay, so Zach, look, it's been, uh, it's, I, I figured, I assumed this was going to be a, an interesting conversation and it turned out as such. And it's great to see, you know, Younger folks like yourself yeah. working on, you know, very interesting areas of exploration and, and having a care to do so in service to something greater than yourself or your work or whatever. In the old days, it was nice because at that time we just like, we didn't care about anything about what was happening or... We just didn't look at the future, you know, we just, for now, you know, it was everything now and never for tomorrow, 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 tomorrow.
we just didn't look at the future, you know, we just, for now, you know, it was everything now and never for tomorrow, 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 tomorrow.